tonight, turn to Exodus 25. Our main text will be in Exodus 35 to the end of the book, but we're going to start in chapter 25. We are now coming to the end of our time in Exodus as part of the bigger picture of the Pentateuch. And so we will have gone through 90 chapters of the Bible in 27 messages, just if you're counting. Before we're finished tonight, we'll tie Exodus back into the Pentateuch as a whole and keep that the, the continuity of the big picture. As you've seen, Exodus is all about Israel, the chosen nation of God through whom salvation will come to all nations. And so honoring that central theme over the past weeks, we've examined Israel's birth pangs, Israel's mediator, Israel's mighty God, Israel's preeminence, Israel's constitution, Israel's expectations, Israel's willing people, Israel's holy worship, Israel's forgiveness. And tonight we'll end off looking at Israel's meeting place with God. Israel's meeting place with God. Now, seminary students are taught to generally divide a text up fairly evenly for the purposes of creating a helpful outline. I need to stray from that convention. I have three points tonight. The first will concern 218 verses. The second will concern five verses from Exodus. And the third will concern zero verses from Exodus. So we're going to degrade really fast here. We're going to look at Israel's meeting place with God in terms of time. So first, we want to look at Israel's meeting place with God in the immediate present. That's our time frame right now, in the immediate present from their vantage point. Now, you may recall from our Joyful Generosity message series that earlier this year, we examined Exodus 25, 35, and 36, and we made the case that God has ordained the idea of a sacred space for worship. And this is where we see this beginning, Exodus 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And then this massive diversion happens. Israel makes the golden calf, as we saw last time. And God is now on the verge of completely destroying Israel. But Moses intercedes as their mediator on their behalf and God relents. Now we go over to Exodus 35. Exodus 35, after a brief reminder of the importance of Sabbath, now that Israel is restored to right relationship, to right covenant relationship with God, you can almost hear in the white spaces here the implied, now getting back to what I was saying, chapter 35, verse 4, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Now, what we're going to see all the way through the end of the book 
is repetition on a massive scale concerning all the instructions concerning the tabernacle that we've observed earlier in the book. In fact, the repetition is so detailed that theologians have made charts comparing earlier sections of Exodus with this later section to demonstrate how much even verbatim repetition exists. And so we're going to walk fairly quickly through that part of the text, but there are some valuable lessons we'll see momentarily because God never repeats himself without reasons. He repeats himself for very good reasons. The building of the sacred space, the worship space of Israel, it was really the singular financial priority, the singular time priority of the people. In chapter 35, verses 10 through 19, Moses makes a call to all the skilled craftsmen to come forward, and he gives a short list of all that will be made by them. And now it was time to actually fund the building of the tabernacle. Chapter 35, verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Now the question we asked when we were doing joyful generosity was, whose hearts were stirred to give? Who is this speaking of? Is this a precedent that some believers will be stirred to give while others are not? No. Remember, this is right after the golden calf incident, and we made the case last time that the Lord spared the nation as a whole, but he still knew who in the nation was unrepentant in their heart, who had sinned against him in their heart. But now the people had to build who had been who had built the golden calf. Now they had an opportunity to demonstrate repentance tangibly. Did you give to the golden calf? Then showing repentance would mean I'm going to give to the building of the sanctuary for the true and living God. And I'm going to do what's right. I would maintain that the ones whose hearts were stirred to give were the individuals who were repentant from the heart. Or to use New Testament terminology, they were the saved ones as individuals. Moses then gives a list of all the wealth which was brought for the construction. And he summarizes it in chapter 35, verse 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And now Moses tells Israel that the Spirit of God has specifically prepared two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, to be the lead craftsmen. They're the contractors, so to speak, if we want to put it that way. Now remember that we saw that the the filling of the Spirit of God into the hearts of these men was actually the very first time in all the Bible we see that happening. That was the first time we see a direct reference to this intimate work of the Spirit. Chapter 36, verse 1, Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So, soon, Moses ran into a small problem. It's a problem we would love to have. They were about to have too much money. So, verse 36, chapter 36, rather, verse 6. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And I can't help wondering if there were those who had chosen not to give who were quite shocked to find out that their opportunity to be a part of this had now passed. And they were not able to to participate. 
Now, remember, they didn't have a bank in which to deposit extra funds. Anything extra, the priests were going to have to carry around. So I would assume they wouldn't want to carry around buckets of gold because that's kind of heavy. So they said, just stop. We have enough. And then the rest of chapter 36 recounts the actual construction of the tabernacle pieces, the, the curtains that would make the courtyard, the posts to hold up the curtains, the frame for the actual tent of meeting with its holy place and most holy place, the tent covering, the, the fourfold uh, cloth and fabric that would go over the tent. And if you are a woodworker at all, you might be interested to know that God prescribed the use of mortise and tenon joints for the wooden frame so it could stand strong and yet be taken apart. Uh, for the rest of us, a mortise and tenon joint is a way to carve wood so that it locks together and can be taken back apart. It would have been done on a massive scale. And then look what Bezalel got to do. He got to do something no other human being has ever done. He made the throne of God. He made the throne of God. Chapter 37, verse 1. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And then it goes on to describe how he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside. He made the mercy seat, the lid, with the golden cherubim, indicating this is God's representative throne. Bezalel made the table, which would hold the bread of the presence, the symbol of God being among his people and providing for them. And we saw last time that Jesus Christ would be the ultimate bread of the presence of God, as he called himself the bread from heaven, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. Bezalel also made the lampstand, the golden menorah, to light the holy place, the, the entrance to the, to the tent, the first room in the tabernacle proper. And we saw that the ultimate expression of the lampstand seems to point to the Holy Spirit as the heavenly scene in Revelation 1 shows us. Bezalel made the altar of incense overlaid with pure gold as well as the, the holy anointing oil, which we'll see what that's for in a moment, and the incense as prescribed by God with a specific recipe which God had given in chapter 30. We saw that the incense that would burn just outside the entrance to the, holy, the most holy place, inside the holy place, but outside the most holy place, it seemed to carry the connotation of the prayers and the supplications of the people being offered up to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. Revelation 5 and Revelation 8 made this clear. Bezalel made the altar of burnt offering in chapter 38. This is the entire center of Israel's worship. For they could not worship God without sacrifice because they were sinners and sin must be atoned for prior to fellowship with God. And then Bezalel made the bronze basin with which the priests would frequently wash their hands and we saw they would wash their feet which were bare for handling all the holy things and for walking on holy ground. And so there, there is a definite order, a definite system to worshiping God. And now an exciting moment comes. All the pieces of the structure are made in final preparation for putting it together. Chapter 38, verse 9, still speaking of Bezalel, very, very important man in this process. And he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twisted linen, a hundred cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side, were, there were hangings of 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars, their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. 
So it's ready for construction. By the way, the fillets are not fillets, as in steak or fish, but fillets. It's, a, it's an engineering term for a connection or a decorative strip. Now, it's the same origin as the word fillet. It means a small strip, but in this case, it's, it's a construction detail. That there's a beauty and there's a detail that's to be given the sacred space of God on earth. Chapter 38, verses 12 through 20, continues describing these pieces, the posts, the curtains, the construction of the, of the courtyard that's about to happen. And now what we're seeing, we're working towards this. There's more of a formality to meeting with God, to appearing before God. With the construction of the courtyard, there will be now an official sacred space. This is something that has never been before. A space which God now calls his own. The rest of chapter 38 makes an extensive and detailed list of all the materials used to build the tabernacle and its elements. Just to summarize a little bit, over one ton of gold was used, several tons of silver, several tons of bronze. The materials were used with integrity and honesty. No one got rich off the building of the tabernacle as proven by the, by the fact that, and you accountants would love this, there is an accounting of exactly how much was given and what it was used for. And so there's openness here, integrity. Chapter 39 then outlines the making of the holy garments for the high priest Aaron. There's no torn jeans, hiking boots, and t-shirts for Aaron because he is leading the people of God into the worship of holy God. And so we get 30 verses of repeats of the intricate and the important clothing that Aaron, the high priest, receives capped off quite literally by the headpiece with a golden plate on it which says holy to the lord so that when aaron went into god's presence on behalf of the people god would as it were read it to see that aaron was able to represent the people to god so to summarize all the preparations chapter 39 verse 32 we read thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished and the people of israel did according to all that the lord had commanded moses And the rest of the chapter gives one more time a list of all the elements of the tabernacle that were now ready and they presented all the pieces to Moses. And what a great day that must have been to say we are ready to construct the place in which we can meet with holy God. The actual assembly of the tabernacle for the first time was to be a special day. It was to be set apart for Israel. Chapter 40 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting. Of meeting. God instructed Moses where all the pieces were to go. He instructed Moses now to take the anointing oil that Bezalel had already prepared and had made and to anoint the tabernacle, to anoint everything that would go in it, And now those things have been taken from a work in progress in a craftsman's shop, so to speak, to now becoming holy, set apart to the Lord. That there was a moment that that thing was no longer in progress, but now it was done and set apart and and made holy. Aaron and his sons were now consecrated and dressed for service. And nearly the rest of the chapter outlines the actual setting up of the tabernacle And with a triumphant note, chapter 40, verse 33 ends, So Moses finished the work. 
Boy, this is a far cry from the almost destruction of Israel because of their disobedient idolatry. What a moment of victory. And God's grace has been shown. God's people may worship him. There is a little spot, approximately half the size of a football field on planet Earth, where people can go to have a right relationship with the God that created them. And what a moment this was. God was going to be among his people. Chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What a moment. What an amazing day. And now the worship of God was possible in an official sense. God could be approached through sacrifice and through the mediation of a high priest. Of course, this is the model of the the coming sacrifice and mediation of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. So you might wonder, why all the repetition of basically everything that was already said in chapters 25 through 31? In chapters 25 through 31, basically, uh, that's the story of God telling Moses what to say, and all of these chapters is the story of Moses saying it. Why not just save a lot of time and say, and these were the things that God told Moses to say? Well, repetition happens in Scripture when God wants to emphasize something at a high level And I would say, in fact, that every single concept which God wants us to understand is repeated in Scripture. That's all of them. In this case, the repetition is overt. It's obvious. You can almost lay these five chapters over the previous six, 25 through 31, rather, that uh, they just repeat one another. What does it say? This shouts to us, pay attention and look at how how important instructions are and learn from this. So what do we learn from the repetition concerning Israel's meeting place with God in their immediate present? What was happening right at that moment? I want to suggest two lessons from this repetition. The first lesson, the corporate worship of God is protected by the regulative principle. That's a long one. The corporate worship of God is protected by the regulative principle. What is the regulative principle? This is the theological idea which says that corporate worship, that's when we're all together, the corporate worship of God is to be founded on the specific direction and instruction of Scripture. Does this text teach the regulative principle? Sometimes it's useful to drive a nail home with a sledgehammer. So let's do that. Turn back to Exodus 35, verse 1. And we'll go through this quickly. Exodus 35, verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Look at verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you and come, let every skillful craftsman among you and make among all that the Lord has commanded. Verse 29, same chapter. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded. Chapter 36, verse 1. Look at the last phrase. All that the Lord has commanded. Chapter 36, verse 5. The last phrase that the Lord has commanded us to do. Chapter 38, verse 22. Chapter 38, verse 22. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 39, verse 1. 39, verse 1. 
at the very end, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 5, last phrase, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 7, last phrase, as the Lord had commanded Moses. All the way down to verse 21, the last phrase, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 26, last phrase, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 29, last phrase, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Should I keep on reading? Verse 31, 32, 42, 43, Exodus 40, verse 16, 19, 21, 23, 25, 27, 29, 32. Do you think that the text demonstrates the regulative principle? I don't think God could have been more clear. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 gives an outstanding definition of the regulative principle. It says, quote, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. For the New Testament Christian, the Bible prescribes the reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the singing of Scripture, the singing of songs which explain Scripture, prayer based in knowledge knowledge gained in Scripture, baptism, the Lord's table, and we could include the fellowship of the saints, the service of the saints, and giving. And that's basically it. That is how we worship corporately. Derek Thomas put it this way. He said it quite well. He said, quote, The regulative principle as applied to public worship frees the church from acts of impropriety and idiocy. We are not free, for example, to advertise that performing clowns will mime the Bible lesson at next week's Sunday service. Yet it does not commit the church to a cookie-cutter liturgical sameness. Within an adherence to the principle, there is enormous room for variation. And so, no, we're not going to have bring your dog to week at church. We're not going to have anything that is outside the regulative principle. There's a second lesson we could learn from the extreme repetition. The corporate worship of God takes time and effort. The corporate worship of God takes time and effort. I just went through over 20 verses in brief, 200 verses rather, in brief summary form, and it still took 20 minutes just to give the highlights. That's like summarizing the construction of a house by saying some guys showed up and made something. It's, it's ridiculous. Not once but twice in Exodus, God took the time to explain the complexities of every element, the furnishings, the fabric, the poles, the garments, where the decorations were to go, what colors were to be used. It took time not only to explain it, but this must have been a massive project taken on by many, many craftsmen. And the question has been asked, how long did it take to build the tabernacle? Well, we know precisely how long it took. Exodus 19, verse 1 says, Israel arrived at Mount Sinai precisely three months after escaping Egypt. Chapter 40, verse 1, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, meaning it took nine months to build it. And you say, well, that's about how long it takes to build a house. Uh, There's three million people and they have nothing else to do. And so this was a big, big deal. But did you notice the contrast? If you thought back to last week, when Israel sinned and made the golden calf and set up a false plan for worship, it took them a day. They did it in a day. 
Because selfishness in worship is effortless. Effortless. You understand that? Selfishness in worship is effortless. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth takes effort. In evangelical America, worship in the local church has so often turned into a show that the church staff is supposed to put on for the church. And you go to almost any church website and look up information about their worship and song and you'll see stock photos of a smoky room filled with thousands of people having an emotional frenzy to professionally produced music. And read the testimonials of people who love that particular church. Quote, I come because I love the worship. Not I come because I love to worship, but I come because I love the worship. Not I love the show, and if your church can't put on a show as good as this other church, then I'm going to go where I'm most entertained. That's the culture we've developed. I'm going to talk about that next week in detail. As long as you're at it, just bring a golden calf with you, if that's what you're doing. What time and effort do you personally put in to prepare to worship God? Let me give you 10 ways to put in time and effort for corporate worship. You've heard me say these before. I repeat myself purposefully. Number one, go through your calendar and choose in advance the Sundays that you must miss for work or for family, and then don't miss any others. Unless you are practically on death's doorstep, you should never miss a Sunday spontaneously. That should not happen. I doubt that on the day before the Day of Atonement, once a year in Israel, they said, you know, I I just think I'm going to take a day off from this second way to use time and effort to prepare take time to learn the hymns and the songs we sing learn them at home and understand them walk through your hymnal there's only 400 and something hymns in there that doesn't take long do one a day for just over a year and you've you've sung them all there's a third way to prepare pray with your family every saturday evening for the lord's day be like a jew of old and As the sun is setting upon the Sabbath, pray for the coming day. Pray for your family every Saturday evening. Pray with them. How about this one? Number four, make the Lord's Day different. How do you make it different? Make it different in clothing. Make it different in your schedule. Make it different in fellowship. Make it different in in rest. How much rest do you get? Make it different. It should be a totally different day. Number five, read and contemplate the Bible passages which will be preached. You go to a church where with with some consistency you can predict what's going to be talked about next. So read ahead. The worst that can happen is you read too much. Number six, pray intently for all your leaders on your way to church. Along those lines, number seven, pray intently to be a blessing to others on your way to church. If you're driving alone, if you're driving in a group, pray on the way to church. How great would it be if you drove into the parking lot in prayer, ready to go? Number eight, confess sinful heart attitudes of discontentment or dissatisfaction. Don't come to the church upset with somebody. Don't come to the church upset with the leaders. Don't come to the church upset with the church. Come content and satisfied. Number nine, confess every sin you can think of and come clean to church. Come clean. Come with a clean body and come with a clean heart. 
And number 10, determine not to be distracted and not to be a distraction. Come determine not to be distracted and not to be a distraction. I know this is going to sound weird, but unless you need it for the nursery or whatever, you do not need a cell phone in a worship service. If you found out that the guest speaker next Sunday was going to be Jesus Christ, do you think you would be checking your texts? I doubt it. He would know it and he'd nail you for it. So it's different than me. It takes time and effort to prepare to worship God. Can I put it this way? At the end of the Lord's day, you should be refreshed and exhausted because it takes time, it takes effort. That's Israel's meeting place with God in the immediate present. Let's look at Israel's meeting place with God in the near future. The near future from their historic vantage point. Exodus 40, verse 34, right near the end. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, the Hebrew construction here, almost all of these verbs do something very specific. They're very vague. They're open-ended. It's almost as if time has stopped. It, it, it says this is what they used to do, but it, it gives you the sense of this is what they're doing. And it's almost as if you could take those five verses and pull them out all by themselves in Exodus. And you can just picture that Israel is still in the wilderness worshiping God. That they're still there. Time essentially stops. It's now a time for Israel to live in the moment. In these coming months to worship God in communion with him. And these verses draw us into feeling as though all other distractions are now filtered out. This is, for example, why we go on vacation. We go on vacation to filter out the burdens of life and to focus on just one or two important things, primarily our relationships. Israel's relationship with God is not yet looking ahead to the crisis of faith and obedience that they're going to have in Numbers 13, which will lead to their wilderness wandering for 40 years. For now, we're meant to be drawn into the idea that all is well. All is good between Israel and her God. And so as Israel's worship of God is now set up, I want to point out four important elements of this time in Israel's history, this almost timeless moment here. The first element we'll call the fullness of God's presence. The fullness of God's presence. Turn back with me to Exodus 34 just for a moment. You remember the temporary tent of meeting before the tabernacle was built? This was a, a, a small tent. Some have made the case, theologians have made the case, it was so small Moses could carry it. And it was set up outside the camp. In chapter 34, verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil. He had a veil over his face until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. But now there's something different. Back in chapter 40, verse 35. What's different now? 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, not even Moses can enter the tent of meeting because of the glory of God. And we're meant to take this as a positive thing. God is so fully among them, so fully present with them, so fully engaged in relationship with Israel that his glory has come to them in such fullness and brightness that not even the great Moses can approach God. Fellowship is so intense and so close that one cannot get too close. And if you're married, you understand this. There's, a, there's an intimacy and an emotional closeness that is almost undefinable. And this is what has happened with Israel, the fullness of God's presence. There's a second important element we could point out. God's leading as covenant protector. God's leading as covenant protector. Or we could use another biblical term, covenant husband. Twice in these five verses, there's a simple prepositional phrase, just two words in Hebrew. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys. And verse 38, Exodus ends on the very same phrase, throughout all their journeys. Literally in Hebrew, in all their breakings of camp. Now, why is that important? It tells us that this is speaking specifically, not of the far future time, but of Israel right now in the wilderness. They're, put it this way, camping with God. They're out with him. But in both instances, what is God doing throughout all their journeys? Twice we're told that the cloud of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of Yahweh would move, and then Israel would follow and go anywhere he went. In the very last verse of the book, the glory of God was in the sight of Israel. Throughout all their journey, what a sweet time of simply following their covenant protector, following their covenant husband, so to speak, wherever he leads. Sin is forgiven. Fellowship is restored. And now in peace, they follow and worship their God. Let me give you a third element in this little text. The third element we'll call the completed tabernacle as a picture of perfected creation. The completed tabernacle as a picture of perfected creation. Now remember where we began in the Pentateuch. We identified what we call the central directive of the Pentateuch and really the central directive of all of the Bible. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that God made mankind to live in perfect fellowship and harmony with him and to rule the world as God's representative on earth on a perfect, pristine world. And this is found, of course, in the same chapter, Genesis 1 as the creation account, which also has more detail given in Genesis 2. But what's astounding is that in the Hebrew text, there are striking similarities between the creation account and the account of the construction of the tabernacle. Let me just give you a few examples. Genesis 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Same phrasing in Hebrew, Exodus 39, 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle was finished. Genesis 2, verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Exodus 40, verse 33, so Moses finished the work. Genesis 1, 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Exodus 39, 43, Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. In other words, it was good. Genesis 2, verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day. Exodus 39, 43, then Moses blessed them. Genesis 2, verse 3, and God made it holy. That is the seventh day. 
Exodus 40, 9 and 10, where they're told to consecrate the tabernacle, quote, that it may become holy. Those are not coincidences. There are no coincidences in the Bible. All of those things are meant to tie us in together that the sanctuary was to be a microcosm of creation in general and of the Garden of Eden in particular where mankind had enjoyed fellowship with God. And so it provided both fellowship and it also provided a reminder of what had been lost because of sin. There is absolutely no doubt that the tabernacle was spectacular to be a part of and to view and to see. But it was a reminder that we had been reduced from an entire universe that was sinless and holy to a tent. That's what we come down to. One more element of this time period in Israel's meeting place with God. We'll call this one the wilderness as a time of intimate fellowship with God. The wilderness as a time of intimate fellowship with God. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament and you've been at Grace Bible Church for any amount of time, we preach the Old Testament a lot. When we say the wilderness in association with Israel, generally speaking, this is negative, right? Knowing what will happen in the future because of God's completed revelation in the Bible, knowing that Israel will have a massive crisis in faith, We think of wilderness in terms of God's punitive actions, his discipline against Israel. Numbers 14, beginning in verse 32, But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. And so we have a, a negative connotation. But remember the timeless feel of these just few verses right here at the end of Exodus. Here in this case, the wilderness isn't a place of punishment. It's a place of relationship. It's a place of closeness. It's a place of intimacy. And to use language and concepts that the Bible uses, this is a time of wooing. This is a time of of courting. God courts and entices and fellowships with Israel or to use language that we're familiar with in keeping with the imagery that the Bible uses, these last verses describe a honeymoon, a time with Israel and God where time stands still and they enjoy this perfect communion together between Israel and her saving God. They're on their way to the new home that their heavenly husband is providing called Canaan, the promised land, And they're in intimate fellowship and communion through tabernacle worship on their way. What a sweet and a precious time. The fullness of God's presence. God's leading Israel as covenant protector. The tabernacle is a picture of perfected creation in the wilderness as a time of intimate fellowship with God. That's Israel's meeting place with God in the near future. We've done the immediate present, the near future. How about the far future? What do they say about the honeymoon? It's what? Over, right? The fact is the honeymoon would be over. Israel would experience what would really be their first very serious consequences of sin when they refused to enter the promised land because of fear. The entire first generation will drop dead in the wilderness while God raises up a new generation. And then with the exception of very few periods of peace and prosperity under faithful kings such as David, 
and Solomon, the entire Old Testament from here on out is basically the story of the failure of Israel to keep covenant with God until finally in a split kingdom, God first decimates the northern kingdom and then decimates the southern kingdom. And after many years of exile, just a few centuries before the birth of Christ, Israel will be reformed again, but never, never to the glory and intimacy with God it had once enjoyed. And as promised to Abraham, Israel will be the means by which the seed of Abraham, the the Savior Jesus Christ, will be brought to the earth to offer salvation to those in every nation. But as we know, Israel will crucify her king. They will murder the one who is the Shekinah glory. They murdered the one who lifted from the tent of meeting and led, led them throughout the wilderness, the one with whom they communed in intimate worship. And so Luke 21 tells us, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. When Jesus was walking his beaten and bloodied body down the road to Golgotha, women were weeping along the way. Luke 23 records, turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And just three decades later, Rome would destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and Israel as a national entity would essentially cease to exist completely. But God is a covenant-keeping God. And when God makes a promise, He keeps a promise. In the book of Hosea, God condemns Israel as, as if she is a whoring wife who is followed after other gods. Hosea 2, beginning in verse 4. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And Hosea 2 verse 13, it's sad, it's poignant, it's terrible. God says that Israel, quote, went after her lovers and forgot me. It's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. So what's God's plan? It is to win his people back. And where is he going to do this? Hosea 2 verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Two verses later, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. He's taking her back to the wilderness to win her heart once again. Or if I can put it in very, very coarse human terms, he's taking his bride back to where they went on their honeymoon. To remind them of their love. Now this reference to the wilderness may of course be metaphorical. Symbolic of a place of original love. I'm always suspicious when things are said to be metaphorical. Think about this. Revelation 12 tells us that in the future, during the great tribulation, halfway through the seven year period, when Antichrist is, is now ruling the world, Jews are pictured as a woman. And they're pictured as a woman who has given birth to a child who someday will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So clearly the child is Christ, the woman is Israel. 
But for now, because of Satan's oppression through Antichrist, who will have, according to Daniel 9, he will have just broken the covenant of peace with the Jews. Now the Jews that are alive on earth, specifically in Jerusalem and all around, are in danger. So the Jews in Israel will literally have to run for their lives. And listen to this. Revelation 12, verse 6, And the woman, that is Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. What's happening in the wilderness for three and a half years? I think our best bet is that God is fulfilling his promise of Hosea 2. He's wooing Israel once again in the wilderness. And what will happen to them? Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Why? Because, as Zechariah 12.10 says, they will believe on Messiah and mourn their sin of crucifying the Lord. God will, of course, deal with Antichrist by sending his warrior king's son, Jesus Christ, to crush the powers of Satan, to take over the world. Christ will set up his rule on earth. He will gather his elect to himself. A new temple to God will be built in Jerusalem according to the specifications given in Ezekiel 40-48. through They will now be in the new covenant along with all the nations of the earth. That's us who have turned to Christ for salvation from sin. And through the new covenant in Christ, the prophecy God gave Jeremiah will come true. Jeremiah 32, 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God. And Israel once again will be the focal point of earth. This is where the throne of David occupied by Jesus Christ will be. It's where the nations of the earth will bring their tribute for the next thousand years as Satan is bound for a time of peace on earth. And then God will release Satan from one last rebellion which will be put down by the Lord Jesus Christ. The earth and the heavens will be melted down as God the Son resurrects and judges all the lost of all the ages and consigns them to the lake of fire. And then... As Revelation 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And what happens then? Revelation 22, 4 and 5, they will see his face and and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Central directive accomplished. By the way, in this final state, where is Israel's meeting place with God? Where's our meeting place with God? Revelation twenty-one twenty-two says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No more curtains, no more posts, no more holy of holies, no more division Now all creation is the holy of holies. All creation is the temple. God is the temple. The temple is God. There's no place you can go that is not where God is in perfect holiness. Israel's future meeting place with God is your future meeting place with God. As all the people of God commune as the bride of Christ with our heavenly covenant protector God or husband in the language that the Bible uses. And all those things come together. The Bible is a perfectly cohesive story that all ends the right way for all of us. Amen? Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for the book of Exodus, the seeds of the birth of your chosen nation. In reading the rest of the Old Testament, it seems that things are hopeless, that this nation that you wooed in the wilderness, that you communed with, who worshipped you, turned away such that they still are turned away. Their eyes are still closed. Their ears are still stopped up as a nation. And so, Lord, we look forward to a day when you will woo your nation once again and how, how precious that will be, how right to take the nation from whom we have our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to fulfill all your promises to her. And, of course, we, we benefit so greatly from those and we commune on an equal level with them. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We ask you, Lord, to help us to live in the meantime in a way that's pleasing to you until that day when all the saved, the Gentiles, the Jews of every age, every time are together before the throne of God singing and shouting your victory. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.